By connecting with our future self, we actually develop a greater sense of self-efficacy and personal agency and control, which means we can have better resilience during stressful experiences. Future self-thinking can also encourage proactive problem-solving and coping skills. It helps you maintain perspective and long-term particularly and reduce the impact of short-term stress. And it helps us prioritize self-care because we have this compelling and bright future identity that we see, we can recognize and start prioritizing the activities today to live into that future. So one of the ways to think of that is to do visualization exercises where we put ourselves in that future self and experience what we would be experiencing in a sort of virtual reality, often in meditation can help a lot. It also gives us a chance to do mindfulness and engage in self-reflection. Welcome to the Menopause Mastery Podcast, a show for women just like you who are ready for more health, vitality, passion, living life with a purpose. I created this show because I knew that women just like me in this second season of life, the season of menopause, are really tapping into their deepest desires. And we're ready to harness our physical and mental health and explore what our true passions are and peel back the layers to uncover exactly what we want out of life. I'm your host, Betty Murray, part geek, part magician, and your new medical bestie with a dash of sass. I love taking the complex science and making it easier to integrate into daily life. So let's join the journey to make this season the best ever. Welcome back to Menopause Mastery. So today I'm going to do a deep dive into the stress response. And specifically, I want to talk about the stress response and reframe it. So if you watch my show, you know I talk a lot about stress chemistry and how it has an impact on the body, particularly on insulin and our metabolic function, aging, and the sex hormones, right? So we all have heard and we all know from the literature that prolonged protracted stress, um, particularly when it's perceived as relentless and ongoing, um, has has been shown to age you more rapidly and increase your risk for mortality. So what we're going to talk about today is an idea of reframing it. And this is actually um, a conversation I had at a conference. I um, spoke for a large international organization. And it was really around the idea of stress, you know, after after the pandemic and, um, you know, the last couple of years. And then if you look at inflation right now, everybody feels really, really stressed. So the promoters of this particular event wanted me to talk about, you know, how can their participants really get um, out of the stress response and, and find a way to have equanimity. And, you know, I really started looking at it and I was like, you know, I think we need to reframe this and and it really came from an you know events happening in my life so up until april of this year i would have told you about the most stressful experience of my life was really the final catalyst of events that actually led to me leaving corporate america after having been in school i mean i was planning on it anywhere anyway but in that time period um you know i just i had gone back to school and spent over three years back in school while I worked in IT and um, you know I was working 100 hours a week and going to school at the same time and I was burning the candle at both ends and through a series of events and just a really really bad couple months you know I found myself one day freaking out um, actually having really at that point a panic attack and or you know I think back in the day we called it sort of a nervous breakdown and I was 
hysterically crying in my car, unable to drive home from work at midnight because I couldn't get enough control of my body to actually drive my car. And that event up until April was the most stressful time period of my life. And then in April of this year, my husband had broken his leg, a compound kind of crush fracture. It wasn't compound fracture, but a crush fracture on his tibia. He was getting surgery that day. And, you know, my husband's a firefighter and a paramedic. So any kind of physical setback is a setback with his work and, you know, what he does. And and also it's an injury that has a long recovery phase. So when he was in surgery, the day he had surgery, we get him home and he's feeling pretty good you know, pretty functional for having been in surgery. And my mom's best friend calls and says that um, she can't get a hold of her on the phone. My mom's 88. She lives a mile away from me and she lives on her own. But I, you know, I am doing quite a bit of caregiving, but she's able to live on her own. And that night, thankfully, I was astute enough to say, you know, I need to go over there and check on her because it wasn't unusual for my mom to be in the backyard fooling around and that you might blow it off for a little while. So when I got to her house, she had had a heart attack or was having a heart attack and she was a little disoriented. She was up moving around, but definitely at first I thought it was a stroke. And so I called 911 while we were in the emergency room and they were treating her for that heart attack. um, She was she was. Um, experiencing a very serious heart attack. Her heart rhythm was what they call a junctional rhythm, which means the upper chambers aren't moving. And the cardiologist informed me that when they treat her, this was fatal, absolutely fatal. They have to treat her, but I had a high risk for stroke. And I said, of course, we have to do what we got to do. They treated her and she did have a stroke. She threw a clot and the clot hit her brain and broke apart like buckshot. And over the course of about eight hours overnight in the ER, I watched my mom have a stroke and she, you know, actually was having this kind of weirdly euphoric experience. She was talking and not making sense to some degree, praying a bunch of different things. And, you know, I watched her go through that and it was obviously extremely stressful. And, you know, like I said, up until that point, I would have put most of my stress experience to be, you know, something I could manage. But obviously the stroke and then the ensuing last 16 weeks or so of her um, post-stroke injury and taking care of her, she's now impaired. She's got quite a bit of impairment from that stroke, but she remembers her historical data. She does not know what's going on today. And so we have a lot of challenges with managing her care on a day-to-day basis. So I added that on top of my typical life of running a business, taking care of patients, taking care of myself, my PhD research, all of that. And what I really realized is in that moment, as I'm starting to take care of my mom is number one, what is happening now is going to be with me for a while and that I need to find a way to frame this because I could easily fall apart from it. And that I really couldn't, you know, I couldn't leave any ball unchecked. I had to be able to catch every single one and throw them in the air. And my husband is just a saint and he does everything for me. You know, he takes care of the house. He'd make sure we um, had food on the table. He took care of a lot of stuff. And my husband literally could not put weight on his leg and was on crutches for well over 10 weeks and you know is just now getting to the point where he can walk but he he still he still has a long recovery so even what he would normally do to help me now he cannot do during this time period and so I started thinking about this stress response and especially as I was preparing to speak for this international company and I want to reframe it as this stress response is actually an evolutionary advantage 
particularly the human stress response. And I want to explain why, because I think this is really important because sometimes it's not what's happening on to you directly. It's your perception of what's happening. So let's first just define the stress response. It's referred to as fight or flight, right? So the first step of the stress response is fight or flight. It enables us to survive and adapt and in, in potentially dangerous in, in, in situations. And here's some ways that this really happens, right? So that immediate response gives us enhanced alertness and focus. The brain releases hormones such as adrenaline and cortisol, which sharpens our focus, that heightens the um, senses, which allows us to react quickly. And it also mobilizes sugar to help us react physically. We actually see an increase in energy and physical strength. So if you've ever heard crazy stories of like the mom that could lift like a, I don't know, a Volkswagen off her child, we actually see this increased heart rate. Blood pressure goes up, ensuring that oxygen and nutrients quickly get delivered to the muscles and the vital organs, this allows us to meet that energy demand. We, in the short term, we actually see a heightened immune response. So we see um, the stress chemistry booting, boosting the immune system, defending against potential injuries and infection, and actually the inflammation side actually kicks into a little higher gear. Again, it's good in the short term. And the other thing is we see enhanced memory consolidation. So moderate stress levels, especially where there's a short-term response, can enhance that, uh, that memory thing, the memory circuits, and we see important dates and details being improved, and that helps us make better decisions in the future. So all of that actually helps us respond to stress in a better way. We even see things like dilation of the pupils, more acute hearing. So in the short term, that fight or flight adrenaline response allows the body to actually respond rapidly to these potentially dangerous dangerous situation. We also get a physiological response that's automatic, right? The amygdala is actually part of the brain that's responsible for processing emotion, and it's going to send information to the hypothalamus, which is basically the director of the show, and it's going to activate the sympathetic nervous system and the hypothalamic pituitary access, which is what tells your body to produce adrenaline and cortisol. We have the hippocampus, which is where we form memories and consolidate memories particularly with stress response and the hippocampus can help inhibit the amygdala's activity and help terminate fight or flight. You have to make sure that the amygdala fires and then terminates. Where we get into trouble and where we get into PTSD is when the amygdala is fired and never has, gets a termination message, right? Because this is how our body takes information in and says, hey, I am no longer at risk. So it's really important. So it helps us contextualize the emotional stimulus from an event, right? So that hippocampal suppression of amygdala activity and the termination of fight or flight is really important. We also have part of the brain called the cingulate, cingulate cortex, and it is involved in various functions such as attention, decision-making, emotional regulation, and it helps us to integrate the information from the amygdala and the hippocampus to produce emotional response and modulate the intensity intensity of that fight or flight reaction. And the sympathetic nervous system stimulates the adrenal glands to produce catecholamines, which are adrenaline and epinephrine, or noradrenaline, or otherwise known as norepinephrine, and dopamine. And the HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary axis, triggers the release of corticotropin-releasing hormone, or CRH, from the hypothalamus, which then stimulates the pituitary gland to secrete adrenocorticotropin hormone 
and that's known as ACTH. And then ACTH prompts the adrenals to produce cortisol. And so adrenaline, right, if you think your adrenaline fight or flight response is about a 10 to 20 second response and then cortisol is already rushing in. And at that point, we actually see that increase in insulin and blood sugar, right? So when those hormones kick in, like I said, we're going to see heart rate go up, we're going to see um, blood vessels and blood pressure change, ensuring that we get oxygen to where we need it to go and nutrients. Our breathing respiration is going to speed up. We're also going to see glucose and fatty acids liberated from the liver to stimulate the ability to act physically. And blood flow is going to be restricted from non-essential activities like digestion to go straight to the muscles and other essential organs to fight or flight, which is why you don't want to be eating under extraordinary stress response. And, you know, this is part of our challenge today is our stress is always or often prolonged and protracted, which means your body's always in this sort of state of affairs. So when we start to see cortisol climb and we see a prolonged stress response, one of the things that's important for the body is to maintain glucose level, glucose levels, and it's going to promote gluconeogenesis, which is the production of glucose in the liver from non-carbohydrate sources to help maintain glucose uptake in non-essential tissues, right? Long term, when that stress gets heavier and longer, then we start to see a immune suppression to prevent overreaction. So it's high at first and then suppresses later. We see reduced inflammation, which can help control tissue damage and promote healing in the short term. Again, inflammation up, inflammation down. Important when we need inflammation, we need it to calm down when it needs to calm down. And then regulating blood pressure by enhancing either constriction of the blood vessels through norepinephrine and another hormone called angiotensin II. And then the release of that when the stress response calms down. When this response is triggered consistently and unrelenting, that's when we start to see that stress relationship with cardiovascular disease, right? Because we need that stressor to a past and it's no longer perceived as a threat. And then the body starts to recover to its normal physiological state. And then the parasympathetic nervous system should kick in and counteract that effect, reduce the heart rate, lower the blood pressure, and lower respiration so everything calms down. Then the negative feedback mechanism to the HPA access regulates cortisol and then returns them back to baseline. So that is the normal stress response. So if you were to look at it, it's short-term, reactive, to get your body to fight or flight, and then it should resolve driving parasympathetic activity. So our human stress response is a physiological response to perceived threats or stressors. And it has evolved, I say, as an evolutionary advantage because it helped us react quickly and effectively to dangerous situations, increasing our chance of survival. So it's really important to think about the fact that humans have become the most pervasive species on the planet. There are very other species, very few other species that have been able to migrate to almost every possible location and figure out how to survive in it. And some of it is our ability for our ancestors to have developed, number one, our incredible prefrontal cortex and brain to allow for deeper, prolonged thought processes, to be able to extrapolate, plan, and coordinate efforts. But our stress response, along with that kind of supersized human brain, allowed us to survive. So one of the most powerful things we can do is 
is reinvent our current circumstances to see our stress as an evolutionary advantage and to fit that evolutionary advantage into our ancestors' correct physiological stress response. So I'm going to teach that to you. So some of this has to do with how we're wired genetically. So some of us are better at handling stress than others. We know that from the Human Genome Project that certain combinations of receptors and genes that encode for activity for the production of these hormones and neurotransmitters and also things like angiotensin may make us either better or worse at the stress response. All of us have a different threshold. Some of those are designed genetically. So what that means is, you know, you know if you are the canary in the cage, right? There are some people, they're just wired this way where they don't have a big threshold for stress, right? They, they can't handle a lot of stress. It drains them or it makes them feel panicky, and it's probably been that way since the day you were born. Or there's other individuals that have a high threshold for stress, meaning that they have kind of a gigantic wardrobe box and they can just keep adding things to it before they have to say uncle. All of us get to some situations where the stress response is going to be no longer effective, especially um, depending on how we see it, right? So everybody has a different threshold. And what I would say is the person with what looks like a um, unending threshold is actually potentially, depending on how they see it, either at risk or not at risk, which we're going to go into today. And then what we know too is the frequency of the stressors, the intensity of the stressors, and the duration makes a difference. And that's where we really get into the thing, right? So here's what's really interesting. And there was a great TED talk on this um, several years ago, but I'm going to go through this study. Your perception of your stress matters and it matters more than you think. So from 1998 to 2006, researchers conducted an eight-year study following 30,000 Americans gathering their experience of stressors. How much stress do they have? How little? What's their perception? Do they believe the stress is harmful? The researchers at the end of the study studied the national database of deaths. Can I say that? So the researchers at the end of the study searched the national database of deaths to find out how many of the participants died. The researchers at the end of the study searched national databases of deaths to find out how many of the participants died. People who experienced a lot of stress in the previous year had a 43% increased risk of dying. But that was only for those who believed that a lot of stress was harmful. People that experienced a lot of stress but did not perceive that, that it to be stressful were no more likely to die. In fact, they had the lowest risk of dying in the study, including people who said they did not have a lot of stress. So they used in this study, they used a standardized instrument that uh, included all the big lifers, life stressors. So whether it was, let's say, a divorce, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, all the way down to financial constraints, all, you know, your most common stressors. And so basically, the, the higher the number was, the greater the stressful events. So let me say that one more time. The people that experienced a lot of stress, so their score was very high, and also perceived that it was very, very stressful, who thought that that stress was bad, had a 43% more likely 
chance to die than those who did not believe that their life was stressful. And the people who experienced the same amount of stress, right, very, very high amount of stress, but didn't perceive it as, as difficult or stressful, were no more likely to die. And the researchers estimated, based on these results, that in that year, in that, I'm sorry, in that eight-year period, 182,000 Americans would have died, not from their stress, but because they believed the stress was bad for them. So that would have led to, in that time, about the 12th leading cause of death, if we were to look at it in 2021. Right. So kind of after kidney disease. So if we put that in perspective, if we were to just take that number and put it into one year, can you imagine what that really means? That means we have people basically dying that it's a, based on their perception. Right. So if we can change how we think about stress, it actually makes us healthier. So what I'm going to tell you today is how you can mimic our ancestral wild stress response to help give natural control back to your limbic system, which is a system that sort of switches back and forth between between your parasympathetic and sympathetic by attaching the emotion and the stress chemistry to each other. So what it really means is, is if we can reshape how we see our stress and turn on the the sympathetic to parasympathetic change device by changing what we do as part of our self-care routine, we can actually reset this and reduce our likelihood for stress to be damaging. And again, I think almost everybody will say that the more somebody is stressed, the higher disease risk we see. Everything from cancer to autoimmunity to cardiovascular disease to diabetes to Alzheimer's. Where the research is most clear is that the risk is greater, particularly in cardiovascular disease. So that's really, really important. All right, so let's talk about the first one, right? So stress gives the body the physical capacity to mobilize the stress chemistry to react, right? Fight or flight. So evidence shows that physical exercise can sustain brain health, stress resilience, and it's really through the regulation of neurotropic factors, neurotransmitters, and inflammatory molecules. So all of those neurotransmitters and hormones allow us to respond to that stress response, but when we harness that through physical exercise, we actually see an improvement. So this translates to an enhancement in cognitive abilities, a reduction of neurodegenerative diseases, and a mitigation of mood disorders like depression. So there is probably no other more researched area of science than exercise and exercise physiology in preserving health and longevity, and particularly health span. I don't know about you, but I don't want my lifespan to be really long and my health span to be short, right? What we want is a long health span and a very short illness to death span. And if anything, we all kind of want to wake up dead one day where we have no degradation at all, right? So physical exercise can do that. And an interesting study demonstrated that a mechanism by which physical acts actually counteracts the chronic stress response and depression is through the modulation of the serotonin pathway, right? So if we look at exercise, we're going to see a boost of your feel-good chemistry like serotonin. But what it comes down to is enough, but not too much. So I'm a big fan of HIT training intensity intervals, but particularly the idea of burst training. Burst training actually is a shorter burst of effort with a, with a 
a, a good recovery phase in between. And usually the length of the exercise activity, meaning the time from when you start to the time when you end, is actually shorter. And when they looked at some of the um, studies, they did a 67 randomized adults were separated in two exercise arms. One did moderate exercise. The other one did high intensity intervals and bursting. And they actually did this during the pandemic. So you can imagine and the people actually had enough stress already with pandemic activities, but then they also checked this particular set of people looking at two different types of exercise. What they found was HIT intervention significantly reduced the depression symptoms more than moderate intensity exercise. So if you're feeling mood issues, having intense bursts of exercise can help. Another meta-analysis, which is looking at lots of different studies, qualifying them, and then looking at the aggregate of the data to give direction for consensus interventions, uh, looked at interval training and cortisol and testosterone levels. They looked at 10 total studies and they compared HIT components, testosterone and cortisol. And what they saw was they saw testosterone and cortisol increased immediately after a single HIT session and then drop below baselines and then return to baseline values after 24 hours right? So the situation was, is if they did a single hit session that went longer, they saw a decrease in testosterone and an increase in cortisol. So duration is key, right? So when we see things like that, what we start to look at is the length of the exercise itself. So when we look at burst training studies and true high intensity bursts, what we see is the idea of re-hit or burst is if you keep the intensity to ideally 30 seconds or less, and actually the goal to try and get it as short as possible, meaning that you get breathless and must stop, ideally within 10 to 30 seconds, and then you have recovery, and that that duration of that exercise is around 15 minutes total, not 45 minutes, that's where we start to get diminishing returns, is if you do the duration for a shorter term, make the intensity longer, we get the biggest bang for our buck. If we're crossing over that 40, 45 minute and longer phase, we start to see the stress response increase. And that's this idea of rehit, right? So rehit, which is reduced exertion, high intensity interval. Carol Bike developed, which is a bike that has been developed to look at this sort of idea. And and that Carol Bike, and I have no association with them at all, but they they looked at the research and it delivers the shortest, most effective workout. And it and they showed that two 20 second sprints, right? So we're talking all out effort, doubled the, the strength and fitness benefits compared to normal exercise in 10% of the time, right? So why is this so important? We are not designed to run for 26 miles. We are designed to fight and fight intensely to get away and to run intensely to get away until the stress is over. And even in the wild, if you remember watching Wild Kingdom, animals didn't have to run for a really long time from whatever predator, they either were successful to get away or they were the one caught, but they didn't run for 45 minutes. And so if we look at that and we re-enable our exercise to our ancestral history, what we start to see is short bursts, intensity with relaxation in between actually shows that we see an increase in growth hormone, testosterone, and a reduction in cortisol in the long term. So it's about duration. So exercise is important and it has to be done correctly. More is not 
better. And I find that to be something that a lot of my women struggle with because exercise is their greatest form of punishment. And when they get on the scale and they don't like what they see from a number or they feel like they cheated the night before, it becomes their punishment. And they spend more and more time in the gym or doing exercise on their Peloton or whatever they're doing. And they're no longer getting benefit, but they keep doing the same thing. So you got to remember these hormones control your body and you need to instruct them to give the body the right instructions. So the take home message is rehit, short duration, high intensity bursts, and then probably some zone two training, which is just low intensity cardio below that cardio threshold where you're burning fat, which is just a duration thing. And that you need to do for time because we were meant to move. We weren't meant to sit in a desk all day long. The next thing I want to talk about is the idea of cold therapy. So cold therapy has been getting a lot of press in the last 10 years, and it has shown to improve our stress response. And it's a practice experience to stress, so we can actually feel better within it. So cold exposure induces the stress response. Perhaps uh, an ice bath or a cryotherapy is probably the best way to do this. So studies have gathered that uh, brainwave data on subjects plunging into either a cold ice bath, cold water immersion that measured their brain activity to the cold exposure showed that cold actually has this calming effect on the brain. And you go, well, how is that? I don't know if I feel calm in that. So how we see this happen is your vagus nerve that runs from your brain to your abdomen, it wanders down your body carrying a range of signals to all the organs, right? So we also call this the wandering nerve. It plays a role in driving parasympathetic response, which is when your cortisol levels are going to drop, which means when the vagus nerve is activated, it sends a signal to slow your heart rate and lower your blood pressure, which is telling your body to relax. So it oversees several body functions like mood, digestion, heart rate, breathing, immune response, reflex actions like coughing, swallowing, sneezing. So according to research from 2008, cold exposure causes a shift in your parasympathetic drive. And several more recent studies back up this connection. And some of the research from 2018 found that cold stimulation when applied to a participant's neck actually decreased heart rate. So here's the thing. So let's say you've never done a cold plunge, which, you know, after having seen a million people do it online, I hope you've tried it. But a cold plunge is jumping into a bathtub with um, ice cubes and cold water in it and staying in it for a period of time. Um, but what the researchers in 2018 showed is if you got a towel, very, very cold and very wet, and pasted it on the back of your neck, it induced a similar, um, less strong, but a similar stimulus to the vagus nerve and helped calm the brain, right? So you can try other things like a cold shower, dunking your head in cold water, taking a cold bath splashing cold water even on your face or obviously doing things in cold temperatures. I have a hard time imagining that today when it was 108 or 9 in Texas yesterday. But going outside in cold temperatures and leaving your body somewhat uncovered can help. Drinking ice cold water, but not to the same degree. And then obviously doing cryo, which I tend to do um, fairly frequently. I go to my friends at uh, Restore Hyper Wellness and spend three minutes and 15 seconds in negative 145 to 100. 57 it's great and then you get out and you feel fabulous so it is hugely beneficial to drive parasympathetic response and it's hugely beneficial to help 
um, from an anti-aging standpoint. So we talked about cold. So the other side of the hormetic stressor is heat, right? So hormetic means positive changes. So balancing of the body. So our bodies are designed to go through these stressors. So if cold is beneficial, the other side of the equation is heat therapy, right? Particularly sauna has been studied heavily and sauna has shown to reduce all-cause mortality. So some of the studies, particularly coming out of Europe where sauna has been a big part of the culture for forever, regular use of sauna has shown to improve longevity. And at first it was a lot of anecdotal evidence. The studies weren't very robust as far as their methodology, but some of the more recent studies are very, very positive. So researchers found that when you do a whole body heat session, it triggers the physiological response that's very similar to exercise. And so what it does is stimulate as if you're doing that exercise. And then as you cool down, we see the correct calming of the immune response, correct calming of the cortisol response, correct calming of adrenaline and angiotensin and a calming of all the stress response, right? And it helps you basically return to homeostasis. So if I look at hormesis and the challenge of cold therapy and hot therapy, both of them and using them interchangeably back and forth can help my body have more resilience to stress. Now, how is that like our ancestors? Well, our ancestors were migratory and they followed the animals. So they went through different environmental stressors and they didn't have the benefits of air conditioning and central heat and air. And so there was a constant temperature stressor on them as well, right? Now food, I couldn't be a nutritionist that without talking about food. So this should go without saying, but I know everybody just needs to hear it, right? A poor diet is going to have a huge impact on your ability to handle stress and your stress resilience. And we know that there's several different mechanisms. Number one, a poor diet is going to lack the essential minerals, vitamins, antioxidants, which are crucial for maintaining physical and mitochondrial, cellular health, and even mental health. These are all important for every part of your body. So if you are nutrient deficient, you are absolutely going to have impaired cognitive function, mood regulation, immune system function, stress response, and physical health. Um, and we have to have that. If you have imbalanced blood sugar, right? So if your blood sugar's all over the place or you've got um, prediabetes or insulin resistance, the more high, highly refined carbohydrates we eat, the more we're gonna see fluctuations in that blood sugar, the best or the best case scenario is we might gain a little bit of weight. Worst case scenario is we might become diabetic, but that blood sugar fluctuation is going to cause energy crashes, irritability, difficulty concentrating. And these factors make the stress response and uh, worse, and it's going to reduce your individual ability to cope with things effectively. A diet in highly processed foods and sugars and franken foods and all of that also leads to more inflammation and chronic inflammation has led to higher stress levels so we see greater levels of cortisol on a regular basis and reduced ability to cope with stress and a reduction in neurotransmitter production and mood regulation. A poor diet also screws up our microbiome and our microbiome actually make a lot of our neurotransmitters like dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine that are responsible for fight or flight, serotonin that is calming and inhibitory. And if we have an imbalance in our food that we're providing for our, our little friends in our gut, we're gonna have a growth of harmful bacteria and a death of our helpful bacteria. And we're just starting to scratch the surface on how much these microbes actually control our life, but they 
do to a large extent control your body more than you do and even more than the the parts of the body that you aren't aware of and so we we need to protect our little gut bugs and make them healthy Um, sleep disturbances we know that crappy food eating food late highly processed foods sugar caffeine can interfere with sleep quality And sleep is essential for stress resilience, and it really is where the brain and the body recover and repair. And we know that sleep disturbances can impair cognitive function and all those kind of things, which brings me to my other major stress (laughs) response plan. Our ancestors followed the circadian rhythm. You did not see our ancestors out there hunting at 3 a.m., i.e. playing a video game or, or scrolling through social media. They went to bed when it got dark out and they woke up when it was light out. And they slept for a long period of time because they also didn't have things like junk blue light and everything else messing up their sleep response. So sleep is another regulator of stress and probably one of the top things that must be addressed. You cannot be healthy, you cannot be well, and you cannot improve your stress response and improve your longevity by not protecting your sleep. Um, So they looked at a study, they did 1,100 veterans that were deployed after 2001. And the ones that slept the worst had the lowest physical, psychological, stress resilience, and more traumatic life events. Poorer sleep, was associated with greater physiological distress, um, controlling for health and demographic characteristics. So once we controlled for all those variables, the sleep was the biggest factor. So stress resilience factors, especially the adaptability, the sense of self-efficacy, significantly buffered the relationships between poor sleep and physiological stress, suggesting that resilience may protect against negative outcomes in poor sleepers, right? So what that means is, is your sleep is super important. It restores function, so it allows the body to repair. During sleep, the body repairs tissues and replenishes energy stores, removes metabolic waste. We build up tau protein and white matter placking and the things that we associate with cognitive and neurodegenerative disorders in our brain over the course of a day. When we sleep at a long enough duration and we get quality deep sleep and REM sleep, the body opens up all the spigots in the brain for the plumbing to basically drain the sewer. If you're not getting enough sleep and most of the research shows that we need to be getting seven hours or more, the sewer never clears out and those proteins and other things start to build up and we see amyloid placking and and other damage happening in the brain. So we see that really, really um, intensely in neurodegenerative disorders and sleep is almost always part of that. Um, sleep also restores uh, neurotransmitter balances, right? So it helps ser- it helps serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine balance. We see all of those help, obviously, um, regulate mood, but our ability to produce them are improved when we actually get better sleep. And in sleep, this is where we consolidate memory and do emotional processing. So REM sleep The brain actually processes and consolidates information and experiences, mostly emotional experiences, experienced through the day. So REM sleep is where you're going to be able to sort of put things in their proper perspective and 
put them in their proper emotional triggering state. So that helps the body sort of make sense of stressful events and potentially reduces their emotional impact during REM sleep. And then deep sleep is where we consolidate memory. So I remember back in the day in my early multiple versions of going to college and grad school multiple times, you know, the idea of cramming. Cramming never worked because you often stay up so late that you miss your deep sleep window, which is where you consolidate short-term memory so you can store it for long-term. So loss of deep sleep also affects that as well. Sleep is essential for your immune system. You know, your immune processes have to recover as well, and it helps us resist infection by driving parasympathetic activity. And then blood pressure regulation. People are more likely to have heart attacks in the morning because of lack of dip of blood pressure at night. So being able to get that blood pressure lower is really important. And during sleep, the blood pressure and heart rate decreases, and especially the earlier that heart rate decreases and the heart rate variability, meaning the variation between beats, is a good sign of recovery. And if you wear an aura wing ring or some of the other devices, they can help you study that to see if it happens. So sleep is super important. And I, ha I have to throw this out because I'm an animal person. When we looked at studies, um, and as actually one that was done during COVID on 483 uh, Mexican own adults who, who had a dog. The owner-dog interaction was a pr predictor of the owner's perception of relationships, stressors, and their situation. So the dog-owner relationship was a predictor of the owner's perceived stress. And so the, uh, the study showed that people that had a great relationship with their dog and a dog had lower level of stress response and an improved overall stress response. Um, another study in, in China concluded that a greater attachment to, pe uh, to pets was associated with lower stress in their owners. So having a pet makes a difference and really um, enjoying that pet. Um, social connections aren't a luxury, they're also a requirement, and they're critical to our physical and mental well-being. Most people recognize the mental health benefits, such as reduced anxiety and depression, but some of the most robust evidence is, is the decreased risk in cardiovascular disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, and premature all-cause mortality. So connections and having deeply um, meaningful connections with people um, is very, very helpful. And most of the Blue Zone research shows that as well. And studies have shown that loneliness can increase the odds of early death by at least 26%, um, which is an influence comparable to, um, to smoking and that, and it's actually greater than obesity. So social isolation um, is also associated with cognitive decline and a 50% greater risk of dementia. So we need people and we need to be in community. I think that's the one thing that we will probably spend decades unwinding from the international response to COVID is we did more damage by forcing people to be isolated than the illness itself because we're going to be unwinding that in generations. And a growing um, body of literature indicates that negative or deficient social interactions can be stressful in their own rights and have poor effects and consequences on physical health. So what counts enough as a social connection? So loneliness is a subjective matter. It isn't necessarily determined by how many friends we have. 
Somebody who is introverted might only need one really close personal friend or connection to feel fulfilled. Whereas an extrovert may need a whole different group of friends for different types of activities. So different kinds of relationships can be meaningful and fulfilling for different needs and goals. Um, your partner might satisfy your intimacy needs and your coworkers might satisfy a intellectual curiosity and your neighbor may help you find your dentist and so they may become a confidant. You know, so the other part of it is we need to also have friends in multiple age groups and multiple social circles. One of the leading things that we see with isolation, especially during COVID, is many people received their more intimate relationships through work because we work too much, particularly in the United States. And that loss of connection because of distributing the workforce caused more social isolation because there was not a wider breadth of friends and community outside of the work relationship. And often we end up um, misconstruing those relationships to being deeper relationships because we have a shared experience. I always joke that when I'm making a hiring decision, it's not a joke, actually, it's a reality. It's as I'm judging the skills of, of the person I'm interviewing and culture fit and all those other pieces, one of the other questions I ask myself, and I've been doing this for 35 years at this point, is can I drive across the country in a Volkswagen bug with this person? And the reason is, is I have to have culture fit first. If you're not a culture fit for my company, you're, you may have the best of skills, but you won't fit in and you don't have the same mission, drive, and integrity and need that the rest of us have and you're not going to go after the same goals. But I spend more time at work than I do with the person I did a long time and a lot of, you know, vetting, i.e. my husband, to spend the rest of my life with. And so we end up having relationships with coworkers and we just need to recognize that that may be a professional relationship and I need to have those other relationships outside of work to add health to my community and myself. So those deeper relationships with families are really, really important. Um, the other thing is, and this is a very important thing, um, is Mark Twain said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, most of which never happened. This quote really highlights the idea that people often worry and stress over potential negative events or outcomes that may never actually occur. And it serves a reminder that worrying, stressing can cause us unnecessary stress and anxiety and will elicit the same response. And we do that process through the language that we use within our head, right? Whether we say it out loud or whether we think it, we are going to respond to it. And thoughts influence that limbic system and the stress response shaping our perceptions, our interpretations, our emotional reactions to various situations. So our cognitive processes, thoughts and beliefs play a crucial role in determining how we experience stress and language shapes that. You know, for example, if I describe something as terrifying or devastating, that's going to trigger a more intense stress response than if I were to describe it as challenging or uncomfortable. It changes how we interpret events, which is heavily influenced by the language of thought and can impact the stress response and the entire cascade of stress after that. And we call this cognitive distortions, um, overgeneralization, 
catastrophizing things, very black and white thinking, can lead to an exaggerated interpretation of the situation and increased limbic system response. I'm sure all of you have somebody in your life that takes an event and by the time they tell it to somebody else, they have made it an everything event and they have also made what was probably something small and easy to navigate through bigger and more intense. Right. So how we interpret it in the language we use is really, really important. Um, language can also um, influence our self-talk. Right. So if we have negative self-talk or repeatedly dwelling on negative thoughts can obviously amplify the feelings of stress, anxiety, sadness, depression. And a lot of times that is stuff that we're not cognitively aware of, meaning it is in our subconscious mind and we have this sort of ruminating information that keeps going around and around and around. And so those thoughts are helped when we start paying attention to it. I'm a big Joe Dispenza fan and, you know, his research shows that most of what's running our show is this subconscious mindset and part of the challenge is you have to catch those thoughts and reframe them and change them in order to change your future. So you have to change who you are today to change your future and meditation is one of the better ways to do that because we can get rid of that ruminating thinking and focusing on negative events. And the most challenging thing from all of this is the more intense we have all of these different factors that lead to um, that lead to a greater stress response, this internal dialogue, is the idea of learned helplessness. Learned helplessness is a phenomenon where an individual, after repeated experience, particularly of uncontrolled restressors, begins to believe they have no control over their circumstances. Um, they've done these studies in rats where they've um, actually altered part of their brain to allow them to, um, to interpret information. And when a rat doesn't have the ability to interpret how to save themselves, they just give up. So what they would do is put the rat in a in a container of water and the rats that had normal limbic system control would swim and swim and swim and swim and swim and swim and swim. But when they cut off that part of the brain that they understood that they could still survive through learned helplessness, they would just stop trying, right? This same effect happens to humans when we have this repeated uncontrolled stressors and particularly the internal dialogue that teaches us internal learned helplessness. This is a belief leading to heightened stress response in the limbic system. So we can change those beliefs. And I like to believe that we can do it through multiple ways. Um, I'm going to give you two examples. There's a million different examples, but these two are two short-term things that either help my perception of how I handle my experiences with other people or how I handle my experience with myself. The first is an experience with myself. And this comes from Dan Sullivan and his group. Um, it's this idea of the gap in the gain. It's the concept that revolves around how we measure our progress and achievements in life. Um, there are two primary perspectives. The gap says um, it's where we measure our success comparing our current situation to our ideal, right? So for all you type A goal setters out there, we all have goals and we have goal posts and we're constantly measuring where I am today compared to the goal post I want to be at. Right? The challenge is, is the type A, as soon as they hit that goalpost, they move the goalpost. So the gap says the goalpost is never met. Um, so we can have characteristics of 
unsatisfaction with achievements, even though they may be good, great achievements. And we obviously instantly focus always on the distance, the perception of the horizon, which you can never reach, that keeps moving out. We tend to have more negative self-criticism if we're in the gap where we self-talk. Um, the consequence of that is we have reduced motivation in many cases. If we're constantly moving that goalpost and we're in the gap, we're constantly sort of saying we're not going to make it. And at some point, it can may lead to overwhelm, procrastination, right? So many of us exist in the gap. The gain says, hey, let's measure our success by reflecting backwards on our accomplishments. And especially if we can pick out accomplishments that were great. Now, the problem is, is if you've been in the gap for a long time, when you go to look back, you don't think you can see anything, right? So, so let me explain it and then we can look at how you might be able to see it. So the characteristics of being in the gain is people are more likely to feel grateful and so they have gratitude and contentment and they uh, acknowledge their progress that they have made this far. So they're constantly looking in their past to prove that the future is happening, right? Because who you are today, if you look back 30 years ago, I'm sure there are parts of your life that you had no idea you would have come to this place. Um, this fosters positivity and self-compassion, positive self-talk, and it helps you have appreciation for your own experiences. The consequences of this is that we have increased motivation and personal growth, and it can boost motivation and encourage you to work more towards your goals. Um, the gain mindset also allows individuals to feel empowered and more likely to take action. So how do we do that? So instead of focusing on where you're headed, right, always future focused, take a second to think back to your, I don't know, five, six-year-old, seven-year-old self, did you imagine at that time period in your life that you would be where you are today, right? Probably not. I don't think I had a, a strong sense of, you know, where I was going to go, what my life would look like. But I did know that I wanted a certain things. Now, as you look back, maybe six, seven is too young. Maybe you go 13, 12, whatever that age was. Can you find one evidence where you like took your life to a whole nother level. You 10x what you did. Really good example is how much money were you making in 1988 in your part-time job? Okay, if you were alive, probably chances are if you're listening to my podcast, you probably were. If you were working, how much did you make? I can tell you I made four and a quarter an hour. That's not $425, it's $4.25. Now, I make way more than that an hour today. Right, so that is a exponential at orders of magnitude jump. And I can look back at the person I was then, the job that I had, the things that I did that I couldn't fathom where I am today. And that shows me that I can make this huge gain in my life. And that helps you really get distinct perspectives on personal growth and success. And you can apply it anywhere to your family right? Instead of being upset with your kids that get mad about the dinner they thought they should have and the dinner you prepared, you could help your kids understand and appreciate the, the things they have by looking at the gain that they had, right? In other areas of their life and help them change that perspective because our environment and our social media and everything else promotes the gap. All right. And the last one is this is um, future self-thinking. 
Um, and I have to kind of give props to Dr. Ben Hardy for doing a lot of this research and writing a book about future self. And I've seen him speak twice on this. Future self thinking is a cognitive strategy that involves visualizing connecting with your future self in order to foster better decision making and motivation and personal growth. So we create a vivid image. So this is going to sound weird because all of you that were looking at the gap in the gain are going to think, oh, but that's my future horizon. It's not. It's a little different. We create this vivid image of who we want to become. And then we make choices that are pre-aligned with our long-term goals and help us kind of move towards those goals. So it's a process of envisioning and identifying with one's future self in order to guide present day choices and behavior. So we create a detailed and visual mental image that includes personal characteristics, goals, values, create emotional connection with it, um, creating a sense of empathy and understanding towards our future self, recognizing their desires and goals. And then we start to align our current activities to fit that vision, including forcing decision-making and ensuring choices align with that. Um, by connecting with our future self, we actually develop a greater sense of self um, efficacy and personal agency and control, which means we can have better resilience during stressful experiences. Future self-thinking can also encourage proactive problem-solving and coping skills. Um, it helps you maintain perspective and long-term particularly and reduce the impact of short-term stress. And it helps us prioritize self-care because we have this compelling and bright future identity that we see, we can recognize and start prioritizing the activities today to live into that future. So one of the ways to think of that is to do visualization exercises where we put ourselves in that future self and experience what we would be experiencing in a sort of virtual reality, often in meditation can help a lot. Um, it also gives us a chance to do mindfulness and um, engage in self-reflection. And it helps us set measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound SMART goals. Um, here's a way to think of how to use this future self-thinking. So one of the things Dr. Hardy said at one of the conferences I went to was he used to ask himself this question. You know, let's say he's coming home from work and he's rushing in. And the kids are in the front yard and want his attention, but he's got an email he's got to return or a phone call that he's got to return. And it was a way to frame that interaction, you know, where he would ask himself, what, what would I want my experience that I see in the future? How would I want to remember this experience 20 years from now? So I started thinking about that question and that conversation. So my mom and I, up until her stroke, we have a good relationship, but it's it's a challenging relationship because I'm the 180% opposite of my mother in every personality trait. And I think a lot of women can relate to that, that maybe you and your mom had a tenuous relationship. And she would frustrate me. I'm just going to be honest. She would frustrate me because what she found important and wanted to talk to me about um, was not how I wanted to spend my time with her often because I was tired. I was worn out from work. I had 50 other things on my mind and I wanted to have a more meaningful conversation. I didn't want to talk about, you know, the latest um, bill that she got in the mail for the 50th time, right? So I would often find myself at odds when I was going to visit her at her house. And so after I saw Ben Hardy speak, what I started to do was whenever I was in a situation where I was probably in the gap, you know, comparing where I wanted things to be to what I thought they were right now, and I was struggling to get in the gain, 
and I was going to have an interaction that I figured was probably not going to go well, I would always ask myself before I would walk up to her door, 20 years from now, what would I want this next experience to be? And it would help me reframe that experience so I could be present with her in that moment. And what it really helped me understand is that those experiences that I had with her in the last year where I asked myself that question allowed me to be with her and be present because my mom's physically present today, but she's not mentally present. So I lost my mom in April, but I have memories that I reframed over the last year that allowed me to have a much more meaningful experience with her. Because the truth is, is your experiences that you're having with people could potentially be your last. And if we can reframe how we have that experience by thinking about how I want to remember it decades down the road, we can have a better experience and a more enriching experience with the people that we love. And so that mindset for me was extraordinary. And the reason why I love the gap and the gain and the reason why I love future self is those are two things that you can do really rapidly to change your perspective in the moment. So what I want to do is wrap this up so you understand. Number one, that your stress response and our human stress response is our evolutionary advantage. If we can change our perception that the stress that we are under is something we can control and something that we actually can benefit from. It's your perception of your stress that makes it damaging, not the stress itself. If we use ancestral-like activities to engage our physical body and physiology to recreate what we did for millions of years through hot therapy, cold therapy, short intensity burst exercise and more general movement. We can eat real food from the planet that is healthy, organic, and live. If we can harness our sleep and protect our sleep and do circadian rhythm training by getting up when the sun comes up, going to bed when the sun goes down, and if we can really change our perception and enjoy our community and our 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 friends and relatives and neighbors and co-workers and get a pet <laughs> if we can do all those things we can actually live a very healthful life and rewire our body's response to stress to make us more resilient so thank you so much for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast and enjoyed this episode on stress resilience and stress as our evolutionary advantage and i look forward to talking to you next week Thank you so much for tuning in to the Menopause Mastery Podcast. You are why I'm here and I am so very grateful. Hit subscribe so you don't miss any wisdom on creating the most exceptional life on our terms. If this episode has helped you in any way, please share it with a friend to spread the love and together we rise. You can follow me on social media at Betty Murray PhD and you can reach me online at BettyMurray.com. 